Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blakes. Welcome to the Fringeworthy Podcast, the podcast of interdimensional exploration and adventure. Thanks for joining us this week and hopefully every week as we explore the many possible worlds of Fringeworthy. This week we're going to be discussing aerial vehicles, how they could be helpful and really make a difference in your campaigns and explorations. This is part of our ongoing equipment Packing Through Survival series. There's lots of other podcasts on that that you might want to check into. Please keep listening, and I hope you're enjoying it. On aerial vehicles, Blix, you had some thoughts about how to think about aerial vehicles. Exactly. First off, we want to assume that we're going to be using an aerial vehicle. It's not always that common for the Fringeworthy to go to a world and use aerial vehicles, but what we're talking about tonight is we're going to already assume that we're going to be using an aerial vehicle for whatever reason. The party has chosen not to use a boat or land vehicles for whatever reason, or maybe they're using them in conjunction with it, but this is the aerial portion. So, that said, decided to break it down into three groups for exploration, for doing surveys and such. So, it's, it's not a vehicle that you need for any other reason other than for convenience of knowledge. Another group would be when you have to travel a long distance, For example, maybe you don't have water nearby and you can't travel a long distance, or you could travel the long distance in the water nearby, but then once you get to where you're going, you'd need to travel a really long distance to get back to the place that you're going to. So an air vehicle would be the best way to go. And then thirdly, out of total necessity, which would be, let's say you come out of a portal or a warp and you're in the middle of some raging hot desert or you're on the other side of a mountain or something, and where you need to go is very far away. And there's no way you can do it uh, either by foot or by boat or by wheel. So those are the three categories that I think uh, we're going to break it down into. Let's go to the first. What kind of vehicles do you think would be good for doing surveys or observation or any kind of reconnaissance, John? If you're looking to do some reconnaissance, an ultralight would be great because they come in various forms from – Fixed wing to a um, big old fan and a, and a uh, parasail attached to the fan and, and the controls. Uh, you're really not looking for range. What you're really looking for is ability to get off the ground into the air. If you can get up high enough, you can actually get, do a good survey of the surrounding terrain because your horizon expands as you gain in altitude. If you're not really good at flying, there's now some very decently built drones unmanned aircraft that can have enough logic built into them they can fly themselves all you're really doing is tell it go here go there and look around take some pictures and come back that allows you to do some reconnaissance of sites that you really can't get into like a fenced scenario or a a secure zone say you pop out near area 51 on the wrong side of the fence well you ain't gonna get in there 
but you could possibly send in a drone to at least survey the area and take pictures up until it gets shot down by the uh, security when they see it. But if they shoot down the drone, which is being radio controlled or laser controlled, they still wouldn't necessarily know where you are. That's true. And you wouldn't be inside of it, so you'd still be alive. Yeah. And the last one, of course, is a balloon. Either your basic hot air balloon, which you can use butane or methane gas to inflate and go up in the air, or a balloon that uses uh, lifting gas. Uh, methane's lifting gas. Helium's a lifting gas. Of course, the good old standby, hydrogen. All three of those could be used to inflate a balloon and take you up to uh, great heights for surveys. John, you were putting up all kinds of balloons and, and UAVs and things like that. Yeah. And you, you think that they're, uh, except for the cases of the really high ones, they're primarily for short-distance type reconnaissance. For one thing, we don't actually have the infrastructure in place for long-distance control of an unmanned drone. The only reason why they can control a predator in Iraq from the United States is because you're using the satellite system, our communication satellites, to relay the commands to that UAV in, uh, in Iraq. Oh, and UAV, I'm sorry, it's unmanned aerial vehicle. That's because they usually fly fairly low, right? The higher your plane is, you still can maintain line of sight with it, correct? That's correct. Yeah, if you're flying up about uh, five miles up, you actually can probably keep, keep control at 50, 60 miles before you have to start worrying about line of sight control. Many years ago, I introduced into the game a plane that was under development by NASA. It was called the Pathfinder. And this plane was approximately 200 feet wide, and it was solar-powered. It had six rotors that were driven entirely by solar panels on its surface. And the whole concept behind the plane was that it would reach a really high altitude using the light uh, during the daytime. And then after dark, it would slowly begin to circle down, maintaining a very flat glide path until sun would come up in the, in the morning and it would still be in the air. And it could then go back up again and continue its flight. When they originally did it, they didn't really have very good batteries, so they didn't think that it could stay up in the air uh, with batteries, which is why they were going for the idea of going for a really high altitude and then circling down into the lower altitudes and still going back up. But now, with the better batteries that we have and possibly some of the high-tech batteries that you could be finding on the fringe pass, it might be possible to, in addition to going up to really high heights, you could also be storing enough energy to keep it up in a stable flight path during the nighttime. But the important thing about this was is that this was a stable aerial platform for surveillance. You could send this thing up and it would keep itself going forever until it, it had a failure. It would range between 30,000 feet and 50,000 feet was the, the operational thing. And with a really good optics, you could have all of the reconnaissance you could ever want. And not only that, it could also be used as a relay station for all of your communications. So no matter where you went, you could use it as a bounce, a kind of a relay bouncing thing for running other UAVs at a lower altitude or for keeping in, in touch with each other when you were out exploring over wide distances or even finding your way back to the portal because it could provide you with all those kinds of things. Uh, it could take pictures of the ground below and even with bad cloud, it would keep taking pictures and then it would stitch together the clear spots so that you actually could see a view of the ground without there seeming to be any clouds there 
To me, this was an ideal tool to use in Fringeworthy as a device for reconnaissance and the other things I just mentioned. So I would highly recommend that you look into the Pathfinder as something to be developed and put into your Fringeworthy campaign. You're right, Bruce. You could get this thing up uh, since 100,000 feet. Uh, from that distance, you could take some really good surveillance uh, with super high-tech cameras. I mean, even if it was just taking pictures of urban areas, like if you knew you were in sort of a an urban world or, or at least remotely urban, they could fly over and see lights at night and find out where you could find out where all the cities are and highways and such. I could see that really being ramped up. Essentially, if you tore it down, it wouldn't take up much room. I mean, you could fit it in a trailer really easily. The Helios, the last one they did, they had a wingspan almost the size of a football field. They needed a whole runway to take off with. Well, that was because they were trying to take it off on a regular runway. Now, there's a couple of options there. One is you could have actually attached it to a balloon to raise it high enough in the air so that it could use its forward propellers to drive along to the point where you could release the balloon and it could take off on its own. And the second option was you could release it from the top of a vehicle. Even though this thing had a really, really wide wingspan, it was all made out of carbon fiber and aerosol and, and the rest of that stuff. Literally, a person could pick this plane up. They only had weight numbers for the Helios, and it weighed a ton. Oh, it did weigh a ton? It weighed a ton. <laughs> they weren't trying to make it out of buckyballs, okay? They didn't have the budget to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but such things is becoming possible. When I put it into Infinite Crossroads, I refer to it as the Pathfinder Mark II because it had all the improvements that I thought should be in it. Another vehicle that's really good are the uh, ultralight, the like little go-karts with copter blades on top. Or you'll remember them from the Road Warrior, the, the tall, skinny guy. He had one of those, and they'd be really good for surveillance because you can take off, you can land, you can you could take somebody with you and land somewhere, let that person out, go back. And he could do a survey for a while in, in a certain area. Like Let's say you find something of interest, you could drop him off, go back, get someone else, take them somewhere else. You could have a couple of these things flying. And you could easily, very easily pull these behind a car or on a trailer behind a car. The smallest are the powered paragliders. It's a go-kart, John. Yeah, it's a go-kart. Go-kart engine uh, with a big old fan and places it one or two people, and they fly. Uh, and after that, uh, powered hang gliders. Well, hold on a second, John. Let's make sure our listeners can really understand how big this is. What we're talking about here is a device that's about approximately the size of a shopping cart. Yeah. <laughs> All right? Plus a garbage can that has the parasol in it. All your, you know, the material that makes up the parasol and all the lines, they all can fit into one of those big garbage cans. You put your garbage in and take it out to the curb. That can easily fit into the back of a truck or most vehicles. And it's mm -hmm. not one of those things that you have to have a special trailer for. Yeah. When we were talking about the boats, we were talking about a number of impromptu type devices that could be just stuck in anywhere because, you know, you could have it for emergencies or whenever you needed it. Just like those collapsible or foldable boats were really, uh, or inflatable boats are really good to have. This is uh, this type of device is really good to have also because as long as you have a relatively short and flat uh, airstrip, this thing can take off and fly around. It doesn't have distance, it doesn't have speed, but it'll get you up in the air. 
and that sometimes makes all the difference. Oh yeah. And I, I highly recommend having such a device like that, or you have enough vehicles that you can carry such types of emergency or impromptu devices. The biggest thing on the powered paraglider is the, the actual propeller. It's inside a cage, and it's, the cage is about three to four feet in size. That's the biggest thing you got to worry about. The engine, between 45 and 80 pounds, so that one person can easily handle the thing. Speed, between 15 and 45 miles an hour. They claim you can get up to 18,000 feet, but at that point, you, we want to carry oxygen. But for the most part, you, you fly about 500 to 1,000 feet. It really requires almost no skill in operation. It works very simply. The faster you go, the higher you go. So when they say it goes between 15 miles an hour and 35 or 50 miles an hour, okay, most of the time I've seen them rated about 35 miles an hour. That means that if you can get it going 15 miles an hour, you can take off. Now, most people, if they really push it, can run 15 miles an hour. You can easily bike 15 miles an hour. And you know that it doesn't take much distance to get that. So this kind of device will be able to take off on a very short runway. But it doesn't climb very fast, so it's important that you have a clear path to rise up. Don't try to take up off of a meadow. Once you get up off the ground, the faster you move, the more you know, feed gas you put into it, the higher you're going to go. When you're at 35 miles an hour, you're going to be about maybe 5,000 feet. At 50 miles an hour, maybe you'll be able to get up to that 18,000 feet. You just simply throttle it forward, throttle it back to change which direction you want to go. And there are simple veins on the back of the a fan that direct your flight. Mm-hmm. It's something that almost anybody would be able to handle as long as the weather isn't too t- turbulent. Now, if it's, right. if it's more than five miles an hour or if it's gusty, this is not a good idea to do. You would really have to have some parachute training. But for most people, if it's a nice day, and the wind's not too changeable, anybody would be able to do this. If you were playing the D20 modern system where it says pilot is only trained, I would say this would be an exception where you could do this particular vehicle untrained. Yeah. Now, the next step up where you need to be trained, but still it fits in the back of your truck or van, is the power hang glider. Now, hang gliding actually does take some skill to do. If you don't have any training, you'll crash most of the times. Because one of the problems with the powered hang glider is that you either have to be towed into, into the air or you run and jump off a cliff to get into the air. But then once you're, in the, once you're going, you just start the motor and you can get up to 45 miles an hour and fly that thing. Since it has a real wing, you actually can climb with that one without actually increasing your speed, just increase, working on your angle. In other words, you can ride thermals up like a normal sailplane can. Save gas. By riding thermals, when you start dropping, flick the engine on again, get some height, and then turn it off and hang glide some more. So it's more energy efficient than regular air. So you're getting really good range on that, you know, for a good scouting vehicle. Yeah. Well, John, you haven't mentioned the most coolest (laughs) short-range aircraft there is. What's The jetpack. Oh, I was thinking about that. And we're not talking the jet 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 pack, because basically it has 30 seconds of flight, and then you're out of fuel. So... Maybe that's all you need. If you're flying from the top of the Twin Towers to the bottom and there are terrorists chasing you or there's Meller trapped you on the roof, you're going to be really happy to have a device that will allow you to fly over to the other Twin Tower. Yeah. 
And I only mention that because there's lots of alternates out there where the Twin Towers are still standing. Oh, yeah. Or if you're on top of the uh, top of something else, there are big building, you can step off. You don't turn it on yet. You wait until you're like about three quarters of the way down. Then you turn it on to, to make a soft landing at that point. <laughs> uh, okay, you'd maybe you do that, John, but I want it working before I step off of anything. Well, no, because <laughs> if your fall is more than 30 seconds, you just wait. You just simply delay the inevitable. <laughs> I'm thinking of this German guy who's built a jet pack, almost flown across the English Channel with this. Thing. Well, actually, he has flown across the English Channel, John. Yes. That's no short-range reconnaissance vehicle. That no. is definitely a really hot device. That's definitely for somebody who really, really knows his equipment very, very well. Your takeoff is you have a balloon or something take you up into the air and then drop you. And then you turn it on. He was skydiving with it, and then he turned it on. <laughs> yeah. Everyone agrees that he is the craziest guy that they've ever met. Eves Rossi. That's the guy. Eves, Ro- Eves Rossi. He's also known as a rocket man. But back to the jetpacks, John. Yeah. Realize that jetpacks have never been a really big thing. The U.S. military tried to develop them here. They actually had one that was a real jet. It was more like a a jet engine on a tripod, and then you stood on the edge of it and tried to use it, but they always had a lot of stability problems with it. In the earlier editions of Fringeworthy, we've always included jetpacks of various kinds. And one of the reasons we could is that we always set it 20 years into the future, so we could postulate all kinds of scientific advances in that. But now, with the way we're able to uh, have onboard computers that are able to anticipate and actually change the flight configuration of jets, where they could lose parts of their uh, engines, parts of their wings, sometimes they can lose an entire wing and operate on you know just one wing and the tail. We have the ability possibly to actually come up with a workable jetpack. So we want to encourage people to not be limited by the current level of our technology. First of all, is that as the campaign goes along, you're going to find a lot of technology becoming more available that might be superior. And secondly, there's a lot of technology to be found out on the French Pass. You might come to a world where they licked that problem, where they made a commitment 30 years ago for flying packs, and they didn't want to do uh, helicopters. They thought those were very unreliable. But so they they decided that they were going to do jetpacks and they weren't going to stop until they did. And they succeeded. After 30 years, they got themselves a pretty workable jetpack. No reason why you can't bring that back to Earth as long as it doesn't require some kind of alternate physics. So don't be afraid to introduce items that are really cool that aren't currently available on our Earth Prime. If your GM is willing to let you find that universe... The universe of the Rocketeer would be a great one to find that vehicle because it runs off a of kerosene and air. We're not asking you to engage in fantasy, okay? Because I know that a lot of comic books, a lot of early show, you know, movies and stuff, they were pretty much fantastical. Yeah. And uh, this is a science fiction game. So there are ways you can get around that. I mean, yeah. you can go really into the super high tech where you've got some kind of a fusion engine that uses just, you know, free hydrogen and fuses it together and produces a spray of, of superheated air out the back of it. That's possible if you want to go really, really high tech. Those worlds could also exist. I, I'm not saying that you can't do that. What I am saying is, is that you know, if it's just a limitation of engineering, uh, a, a limitation of materials that haven't been developed, not 
Not that they're impossible. They just haven't been developed yet. Don't let that stop you. You know, that's one of the fun things about Fringe, really, in my estimation, has always been finding some really great thing out there that you can bring back and add to your character or your group, you know, as long as it isn't so good that IDET will let you keep it. But then we talked about before in another podcast how to get IDET to let you keep that. So we want you to have those things. GMs, don't deny your characters that. Make it important to the adventure. Let them fight for it. Let them get it. Let them bring it back. Let them uh, enjoy it. Yeah. One of the, the jetpacks we overlooked that, that I, I really like are the Micronauts jetpacks um, because they're they're completely – those are completely high-tech. I mean there's, there's, you absolutely have to find those. But they don't use a propellant or a um, you know traditional thought of how, how we you know use jetpacks now. I mean right, they don't really say how they work. But I imagine them as having some kind of anti-gravity unit in them so right. that you know, you're know you not fighting gravity. You start to float. And then maybe some kind of I don't know, kinetic wave technology or something where the thing generates kinetic energy, which shoves you through the air. Yeah. Uh, but but you can always do that, too. Yeah, right. The sad thing is uh, it may only work on the, in the, the place where you find it, too. Well, well, that's only if it's weird science. It could still – you could still invent something like – or could still have something like that yeah. that still obeys the laws of physics. It's just beyond anything we understand right now. Right. Uh, one of the designs that was uh, – I, I don't know how realistic it is, but I thought was a pretty good concept was that one guy was working on a kind of a frame that he would attach around him that had six to eight miniature jet engines on it. The idea being that they would uh, – each of these engines would provide enough thrust to actually lift a person. Mm-hmm. And then if one of them or more of them failed, you had enough redundancy that you would still be able to fly safely and land safely. These jet engines, these were only about the size of a thermos. They required, you know, of course, very high-tech aerospace-type designs. And, again, these are things that are going to become available in your fringe-worthy game. And there might be a world out there where it actually works. Now, if you don't want to limit yourself to just the known physics, one of the most famous jet packs was the anti-gravity pack that was used by Buck Rogers back when it was originally uh, released as Armageddon, like 2033. They had a backpack that was filled with material called Inotron. It was repulsed by gravity, and so therefore it fell away from the center of gravity of the planet. And what you would do is that it was a very dense material. It was like lead, and you would just simply go and put enough of that into a backpack to reduce your own weight down to maybe only five pounds or even less, and with that, you could literally jump hundreds of feet, even you know football fields, in a single bound. Now, you did have to be careful because you had essentially just doubled your mass. So when you came down from a leap, you were going to be landing not with maybe 150 pounds, now 300 pounds. So you had to have pretty strong legs, and you had to be pretty careful about how you landed because you could pick up an awful lot of forward speed doing this. But it was quite possible to have all the benefits of a jetpack because you could also easily climb up to the top of any cliff or any tree and get a good view of things. And you could leap from tree to tree, just slowly floating down, you know, essentially like a flying squirrel. And if you wanted to reduce your weight down to only a few ounces, you then could use a jet engine of fairly primitive design to push yourself around because now you didn't need all of that force to lift that weight. All you needed was enough force to push you in the direction you wanted to go. 
So later on designs in the comic books and strips, you saw these very small jet engines exhaust coming out of the back of it. They could send them here and there and they could hover. Most rocket packs are essentially using exhaust force to keep you in the air. You're literally on the end of a rocket. If you're on Mars, you can always use the eighth ray of the sun for your lift properties. That's true. Or if you if you land in the right world, you can always paint Cavorite in the bottom of your, of your shoes. As for short range, there are a number of these really high-tech type devices, which could be used as well as more traditional helicopters, balloons, uh, drones, and other type aircraft. So observation, you have a lot of options here. It doesn't have to be just climbing a tree and seeing what you can see. Yeah. You've got a lot of aerial options for doing that. And that's one of the best methods of using aerial vehicles is for observation. For most of these light aircraft that you're actually flying in, I highly suggest putting on a ballistic parachute. What a ballistic parachute is, it's a device, the accelerometer in the device and goes, you're crashing. It immediately go, fires off a charge, it blows the parachute out the tube, and the parachute will inflate such that you may only drop 50 feet. And then you get the parachute to give you a soft landing on the ground. It's a device that will fire a parachute yes. out uh, away from you and in, uh, and open almost instantly. Yes. We should remind the listeners to go back to the French travel episode and check out what we talked about with the uh, wingsuits because they're handy as well. The, the, the flying scroll uh, suits work here just as well. I mean, we're using them right now. <laughs> Right. No, I'm just saying, but we we talked about that pretty extensively on the uh, the fringe travel show. Right. So, the big advantage of the wingsuits on the fringe path is that you can go into an area of zero g where you know you don't have the problem of worrying about lift. Here, they would still work fine, but you would have to probably use it as a means as an alternate to a parachute. There are a couple of guys out there who are trying to design a squirrel suit that lets them step out of an airplane and land without a parachute. That's the hard part, because most squirrel suits, you get to a certain point, you pop a parachute, because you're still going way too fast for a safe landing. But there's a couple of guys who are trying to design a squirrel suit that lets them really fly and make a safe landing on the ground without popping a parachute. I'd like to see it. I would love to see it, too. But you'll probably, yeah, probably see in the news as a report of three skydivers, so they died in an experiment. Every device that's ever been created has made a difference in our lives. Somebody's died in the development of it. Yeah. That's just the cost of progress, John. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, we're bringing the awesome to the game, so mm-hmm. guess what? It is, it is possible in your game if you want it to be. You know, it's not that, it's not really that big a stretch. Right. So, you know, I could see if you have like a slightly larger ultralight and you fly in behind some area of surveillance and two guys drop off the sides of it in their squirrel suits and land behind enemy lines or, or somewhere where they couldn't normally get that was dangerous or whatever, and they could set up a perimeter for the other guys to come in. So. Why drop off? They're being towed. Oh, yeah, okay, there you go, being towed, and they just let go of the line. I'm sorry, Blix, I didn't mean to sound like I didn't believe it was possible. Oh, I no, really no. mean I would like to see that. I mean, you could have enlargeable squirrel suit. You could have one where you have wings for traveling at speed, and then when you get further in, they might be able to pull a, a thing and deploy more panels and therefore catch more wind and provide more lift. This is an engineering problem. It's not a problem of physics because we already know that they have the ability to safely take somebody to the ground. It's called a parachute. Paracels are not that big. 
just by shortening it up and, and shaping it around a person, I'm sure that eventually they'll be able to figure out some way of doing it uh-huh. that will be you know, absolutely awesome. Yeah, maybe the sail goes all the way across the back and it's tightly attached to the suit. And then when they get close to the ground where they want to land, the part that's connected to the suit pops loose and it becomes more like a parachute. You know, something right. like that. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's not a conceptual problem. That's just an engineering problem. So let's talk about long-range travel. Okay. All right. Go through the portal. You already know that where you got to go is a far away away. And you don't have easy access, say, either by land or you're not close to water. Or like I said before, you're close to water and where you're going isn't. So an aircraft would come in exceptionally handy. Maybe there's mountains between you or maybe there's this humongous forest or very disease-ridden area or area filled with dinosaurs or whatever. So what are our options there? What do we do? If you were actually trying to go from California to the Great Lakes in a primitive world, let's say any time before 1900, a plane would be the way of doing it if you wanted to get there at any kind of quick uh, speed. But what about all the settlers who crossed the mountains in the covered wagons? Well, yeah, you can do that if you really feel like, you know, finding passes through the mountains and so forth. And taking six months to do it. Do you know what the weather's going to be like? Do you know what season you're getting there? Because if you start heading towards the mountains and winter sets in, you're toast. You know, traveling by land is just, okay, it's possible, but it's real, it's stupid. I remember we mentioned the Landmaster? That's the vehicle I would use to travel that, that kind of terrain. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it would also be big enough to carry enough fuel to get you there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you wanted to mention about aircraft, John, is the fact that they use a lot of fuel compared to some other kinds of things but when you're covering arduous terrain especially terrain that does not have roads it's actually very efficient as far as that's concerned so uh, a plane that can travel uh, a thousand miles is not uh, outside the realm of possibility as a matter of fact there's an ultralight that could travel all the way around the planet based only on the fuel that was in it it was sturdy enough to be able to do that again we're talking about the best of the best type of equipment. So there are definitely aircraft that can go that kind of a distance and come back. Going from California to the Great Lakes is quite possible, especially if you had a base there, someplace to go where you had more fuel. Uh, If you were in a world where they were able to refine some form of jet fuel that was reliable and had consistent quality. The biggest problem about using aircraft for long-distance travel or relying on it as your primary form of travel is you have to normally bring all your fuel with you because planes require very good fuel for you to be able to rely on them. You don't want fuel that's questionable because you can swim a lot better than you can fly you know, and, and so forth. So your plane dropping out of the sky is not going to be a good thing. So that gives you only two real choices. One is to have uh, a good support system, a world that actually has good fuel on it, or two, you, uh, you can bring it yourself, or the third possibility, which is to use some form of air travel that does not rely on fuel, at what? least not the fuel that, 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 that's wet and pours, but rather fuel that comes from the sun, like solar power. Remember, though, the, the first aircraft ran off of kerosene and gasoline. So, but they didn't have the performance 
that uh, the uh, JP4 and uh, the other grades of jet fuel do have. So, yeah, you could probably you can say I'm going to use a uh, more uh, not not so high tech engine and I'll be able to fill it with, with kerosene. But just remember, you're going to be bringing more kerosene than you, than you it would be JP4 at that point. I'm suggesting that for real French travel, I don't think that you're going to want to get a multi-fuel engine for your plane no. uh, like, like you might do for a truck or a boat. You're really going to rely on very high-tech, good fuel, and you're going to either have to have a good source of it there where you're going to and where you're, you're leaving from, or you're going to have to bring it with you. And this is going to be a limitation to your use of aircraft as long as you're relying on liquid fuel. If you're going to rely on solar power, that pretty much limits you to two kind of aircraft. One, a glider of some sort, you know, a powered glider. Super ultralight. Or the preferred aircraft of all interdimensional travelers. You mean a lighter-than-airship. Nothing says an alternate world than a Zeppelin flying in the sky. And, John, what exactly is a Zeppelin? Because we had this discussion about Zeppelin, balloon, dirigible. What, what, explain that to the people listening because most people most people have no idea what the difference well, is. Balloons are basically just a bag of gas. They have no control over their ability to flight direction. They're basically at the mercy of the wind. So a balloon is just a bag of gas, either hot air or some other kind of lifting gas. Hey, I represent that. Yeah. <laughs> totally at the mercy of the wind. Uh, an airship, they come in three varieties. You have your... A non-rigid or blimp. Uh, the Goodyear blimp is the prime example. You have semi-rigid and rigid airships. Semi-rigids are, there are a few examples. They basically have a minor skeleton of some sort, uh, but rigid airships have a metal skeleton, usually aluminum, though, though these days the uh, Zeppelin Corporation is building a new Zeppelin that uses a carbon fiber skeleton. It's a rigid skeleton, and it, it helps it hold its shape and carry more cargo, more more capacity for carrying things, because the rigid shape allows you more attachment points to put things. And it also doesn't deform as much as a blimp does in high winds. What would really be cool is if you had tractor-trailer, and the trailer on the back would be your travel bay. Your aluminum skeleton would fold up inside of the trailer along with the, the bag that, that would inflate. You'd get out and you'd let your batteries charge up or maybe run it off the motor and you would uh, unfold this thing like a transformer and this, you know, this big balloon skeleton thing would, would inflate and unfold mm-hmm. and then you'd release clamps and this thing would lift right off the back of the uh, truck. I was watching a, a show where they're busy inflating a Goodyear blimp there was a tanker truck next to it, inflating it with helium gas. So you have an airship. You also either have some way of generating gas, such as hydrogen, or you bring along a tanker truck full of helium for lifting gas. And then you have to decide whether or not you're going to simply just vent the helium or pump it back into the tanker truck. <laughs> because you ain't going to find any more helium out there. And if you want to get off that world with, that, with your airship, you got to somehow deflate that sucker and save the helium. One of my favorite stories by Norman Spinrad, the main character, he had a bicycle. And on the top of the bicycle, he had a, a small frame that had a, a dirigible attached to it. Whenever he had to travel someplace where there wasn't any roads, he would simply release the hydrogen or helium. He would release it into the bag. He would then fly up in the air and 
then his bicycle flip the wheel sideways, then become blades to propel it. And he would just fly wherever he needed to go. And then when he got back to where he wanted to land, he'd start running a, uh, a little motor that would start compressing the, the uh, lifting gas out of the envelope back into the tank. And slowly he would uh, go down and then he would land and then suck it all back down to where he was all nice and flat again in the little frame over his head. Yeah. And this was the way that people traveled in those days. They only had local roads. That would be a, a personal dirigible that uh, worked quite well. He used solar panels. I believe they were organoelectric, the ones that you could literally spray onto the plastic and act as solar panels to uh, provide the electricity required to run the motor to compress the hydro, uh, the helium uh, back into the tank. And he used a carbon fiber tank. It was low weight. The whole thing seemed very doable to me. If you do need to produce lots of hydrogen, electrolysis is the slowest way of doing it. The fastest way uses methane gas and water. This is carbon monoxide and lots of hydrogen. If you can find a, a swamp of or maybe a big pig farm. Any sewer before, say, 1900. Great source of methane. Uh, mines are a good place to get methane, too. Yep. Especially the old mines, because they didn't collect it. They just vented it out. Mm-hmm. So if you were in the Victorian world, that might be a place where you could get something like that uh, fairly readily. Oh, yeah. You might even be able to pay the mining guy some money and say, hey, can I have that gas you're just uh, shooting out into the air? And he'd be like, you're going to pay me for that? Sure. They do have airships, both rigid and semi-rigid, in use. And helium is a strategic gas because the only place they can find it right now is Texas. Texas actually is an independent nation from Mexico. The reason that they find it in Texas is because they get it from natural gas, right, John? That's correct. Using cryogenics to decant it out. That's right. But back to the rigid airships. Yes. Okay, if, you, if you want to travel long distances in the air, that's probably one of the best methods of doing so. Mm-hmm. Because unlike an airplane where the engine has to be running in order to keep you in the air. And so that really high-grade airplane fuel or jet fuel has to be there. A dirigible can run on much poorer forms of fuel. You can use a diesel or other type of engine to produce electricity, which can then be used to run the props of your airplane. When they were building the Zeppelins, several of the Zeppelin models actually had a secondary set of uh, gas bags inside that carried flight gas. Basically, it was a natural gas they used to run the engines. Now, John, earlier, before we started the podcast, you talked about one of the methods that could really improve the lift, where it would be a solution where you didn't have that much lift gas or it was kind of hard to get your hands on. You said there was a way of actually improving the lift of gases. Oh, yeah. If you really want to get good lift, you make a hot air hydrogen balloon. Dirigible. You make a hot air dirigible. Now, people say, well, that's dangerous. Well, the answer is, yeah, it is. But as long as you don't hit the auto-ignition temperature of hydrogen gas, which is about 450, 500 degrees uh, Celsius, you're okay, as long as you have no other sources of flame. Basically, the hotter the gas is, the, the more volume it needs. The hotter the gas, John, the more lift it provides, the amount of volume it takes. If you want to get the very best lift, it's vacuum. If you can get a hollow shell size of an airship, filled with nothing, you get the very best lift. It's sort of like a a bottle of air in water. 
the air is much lighter, less denser than the water, therefore it gets, it gets lift. Well, vacuum is less denser than air, therefore it provides even more lift. Trouble is, you'd have to have some sort of really ultra-light material that wouldn't crush under the pressure of the atmosphere. You never know. You might actually find some some world may have designed some sort of electrostatic material that is a couple atoms thick, but it's rigid and it's hard and it's full of nothing. And you get the very best lift out of that. <laughs> well, there's two examples I can think of that, John. Yep. Uh, one is is from the story Tarzan at the Earth's Core, yep. which was one of the stories of Pellucidar. And the premise of it was they were bringing an airship and they found a special material that was as light as cork, but it was strong as steel. And that's exactly what they did. Because it was so strong, they were able to evacuate all the air out of it and provide lift where they didn't have to bring any lifting gas whatsoever. Mm-hmm. All they needed was the ability to be able to pump any uh, air and molecules of air that might get into it over time. Yeah. So they, they built essentially a rigid airship that never needed to be refueled. All they needed to do was provide whatever they needed to push the uh, the thing along using either uh, jet engines or using... Propellers. Propellers, and the biggest danger to dirigibles was, was eliminated. They uh, used most of the material that they found in making the airship, so, of course, it didn't revolutionize aircraft as we know. Yeah. But still, and as far as the game is concerned, the Tamelaran steel and Tamelaran plastic are both very, very strong and very, very tough materials. And so, and even Tamelaran ceramics is also, I mean, we're talking thousands of times stronger than steel and and most modern materials. So it's quite possible that these could be used to make a very large lifting container that would operate by evacuating the air. Barring that, yeah, hot hydrogen would work. Now, you can do that a couple of ways. You actually could have some sort of electrical heaters inside the gas bag to heat it up, or you could just simply paint the top of your airship black and just let the sun do its work and heat up the gas. Now, it does mean at night you will lose all that heat and you'll drop, you know, you'll lose altitude. But if you do everything right, you won't, you won't crash into the ground or crash into a mountain in the process. Well, it, it depends on how you're transmitting the heat. If you use a material that's very, very heat conductive, mm-hmm. some kind of super thermal conductor so that when it hits that black, it gets turned into heat and gets transmitted inside. But it's also possible that you could pull over some kind of a sheath over top of the, uh, the, the lifting bladders at night and therefore keep the heat in. Just you know, maybe made out of some material like aerosol, which has thousands as, as times the, the amount of insulation as, as something you know, that you might use in your house, and it weighs nothing. Literally, you know, a block uh, the size of a, of a building would weigh only a few pounds. They call it solid air is the term. For it. <laughs> right, but this is a real material that exists. It's been made. Okay. Yeah. They use it in a number of aerospace-type applications. Yep. So th- this is something that could be used in this kind of thing. Inside the, um, the the various airbags, you actually could have a small fan. Its main purpose is to provide convection, get the air moving in there. As hydrogen gas gets heated up, it gets moved around. Everything's evenly heated inside the bag instead of just be hot in the top and cold in the bottom. I've used a rigid airframe in one adventure. We needed to go a very long distance. This was a world ship. This was a spaceship that had been designed to carry multiple races to a new world. 
The ship was a million miles long, and it was a quarter of a million miles Mm. wide. The portal was about two-thirds of the way down the length of it, and they had to go to the front because that's where the control (laughs) chamber was. And there were no roads. People just kind of sat around in their little villages and things like that of different races. There were jungles, and there were plains, and there were a number of things. And And there was no real method of transportation as far as anyone can see. So they had to come up with another solution, and their solution was a dirigible. They made a dirigible that, first of all, used uh, solar electricity to drive the engine and to charge up batteries for when it's nighttime and so we don't just hang in the air because they, they knew that they'd have to travel constantly. They would not be stopping unless they used some other method of, of going down, visiting, and then flying back up to the ship because – in order to go a, a million miles, you've got to keep going. Uh, they knew that this trip would probably take them at least a year or, or, or more, and then certainly to come back. So they built the idea with this ship to run continuously. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the problems about doing that was, okay, where do you get your fuel outside uh, your lifting bags and, and other types of things like that? One of the things that they did was they hung from the bottom of the dirigible a small platform where they had a wood cracker, gasifier. They would land and they would chop down trees and things like that, and they would shove them all into this thing, and it would crack the hydrocarbons in the wood to produce either gas, uh, as in a, an actual gas that they would compress, or methanol that they would then store and use for uh, running various types of devices that they had, especially aircraft. So they would land every once in a while, but mostly what they would do is they would load this thing up with whatever the ship could carry. And this thing was a big airship. It could carry maybe 10 tons of cargo. So this thing hanging below them would carry, you know, a number of tons of stuff that they would be processing as they went along, and they would only stop every once in a while to get more stuff, but mostly they were relying on the solar electricity. The first time that they tried this, they tried to rely only on producing uh, something that could burn and run the props. Later on, they said, no, the better solution is to use solar electricity to drive the props. The weather was very stable and very reliable, and so they did. They traveled. Uh, They traveled a million miles. It was uh, quite a journey. But that journey of a million miles was done by airship dirigible, and it was completely within the realm of believability, even at our own current technology level. So don't play versus games. It put you on a little slow boat to China. (laughs) (laughs) So we've already talked about vehicles that can travel long distances and such we were saying before about how that would be a category you know how would the vehicles differ between these two between those two types well most long range vehicles are going to be big vehicles you know if i'm going to travel a long distance okay i'm going to want to do something when i get there so you're going to have to bring your exploration gear along with you so a vehicle that, that's big enough to carry at least a few vehicles like some Jeeps or Humvees or a boat or other things that you might want is pretty essential. You, you don't want a small little little vehicle, that, even though we might be able to uh, travel hundreds of thousands of miles, like the Rutan vehicle. That was a stunt. That was designed to say, hey, we can do this. And if you wanted to do nothing more than take pictures of a planet, that might be a good solution. But most of the time, when you want to travel long distances, you, you're, you're doing it for A, for a reason, and B, you want to do something once you get there. There are going to be cargo vehicles of some kind capable of bringing uh, something that will be significant once you get there. 
So you get your Zeppelin through the, the French path. You get the thing constructed on the other side. You bring in your tanker. You fill it up with helium. You sail as far as you're going to go. If you don't have helium to refill it again, your range is limited by how much helium you can keep yep. in the thing. You would probably have to start supplementing your helium yeah. with hydrogen from other sources, either through, as John said, some kind of chemical uh, conversion or using some kinds of electrolysis to separate water into oxygen and, and hydrogen and, and so, refill your tanks that way. Methane is a lifting gas. Not as good as helium or hydrogen, but methane is a lifting gas. A lot stinkier, too. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, methane has no smell to it whatsoever, but the sources that you're getting it from probably add in a little something to the mix. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought helium was a stinky gas. I mean, uh, methane was a stinky gas. No, actually, natural gas that comes out, out of your pipes is actually methane, and they have to oh. add a molecule to it to make it stinky so that okay. you can tell where there's leaks. But by itself, pure methane has no scent at all. Okay. All right. So you're going to bring an aircraft through. Now, we're getting into planes now. You're going to travel this long distance. It needs to be something durable because you're probably flying over mountains and you're probably flying, you know, through areas where you're going to need, uh, you know, climate control or for whatever reason, if you need this vehicle to travel a distance over a hazardous area, you know, maybe people are shooting at you. So we're, we're getting into like real like planes at this point, right. I, I think. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of plane can we bring through the portal I'm assuming it's going to be something where the wings come off, and when we get to the other side, we put the wings on, right? Yeah. There's lots of uh, aircraft where the wings actually fold. That's okay. how that's how they were able to use them on uh, on aircraft carriers originally. How, how big is their cargo and, and crew capacity on something that has the, the, the folding wings like that? The folding wings, not so much, because they were something that was usually uh, attack aircraft or reconnaissance aircraft that took off like an aircraft carrier. You want, you want an aircraft that has a known pedigreed that you know can do the job and, and fly long distances and take horrendous amount of punishment and still get you home. And there's only a handful of aircraft that ever met that criteria. Uh, one, of course, was the DC-3. Right. I was going to say the C-130. Yeah, C-130s are, are the same breed. I mean, they're basically designed to be beaten up, kicked over, spit on, other body functions performed upon its surface, and still fly. <laughs> and that's also one reason why they were chosen for the Richards, uh, the TriTac game hardware Interland, is because they were such a durable bus. Yeah. Now, you still right. have to take the wings off. And, you know, and that is one that the failure point on anything. If you got to take it apart to get it to the, the platform, one day... You will be putting it back together, and you'll look down, and you'll have some extra uh, bolts or some, or worse yet, some extra nuts. Uh, bolts, I can go, oh, okay, I've no problem there, but extra nuts, that's a problem. Because <laughs> bolts, usually, uh, you can always find a replacement. But if you got nuts, that means you may be missing bolts as well at that point. <laughs> if you're going to go on a mission where you require an aircraft. Mm-hmm. This is a pre-planned mission. This is not something you just happen along. Hey, we're riding along with our C-130 attached to a, you know, a gigantic trailer, and we happen along this portal where we just might need it. You know, you knew you were going here. You knew you were going to need that. So, right. I'm imagining you're going to bring a pretty crack shot, like maybe a team of mechanics, and maybe they won't even go on the mission with you. Maybe only one or two of them will go with you, uh, just to keep this thing, you know, running once it gets to where it's going. You've got to bring your long machine shop you got to bring on parts. 
you're probably looking at maybe at least a 10, 12-man team to do this. <laughs> John, that's not true. You're imagining something that is more reasonable for a, a commercial-type situation. We have computer-controlled lathing machines. We have machines that can construct things out of metal stock. Yeah, but you don't have the guy who can climb up inside the wing and put it together. You are going to require at least one expert mechanic. There is no question of that, okay? Yeah. But you don't need to have 12 of them. Yeah. Secondly, as you already said, a DC-3 is a workhorse. It can take a tremendous amount of punishment. I'm sure that knowing that you're going to send it through a fringe path, you're going to have some really clever people who are going to sit around and say, okay, if we have to take the wings off this plane, we've got to produce some additional supports inside this wing so that this join actually becomes the strongest part of the plane. Whether we use some kind of uh, carbon fiber connections or titanium rods or whatever it is, I'm sure they could come up with a solution that might actually add more to the value of the plane than the original cost of the plane, but they could do it. Moreover, we're playing a game. We're playing friends worthy, and we're having a good time. And yep. and yes, you got to. We try to keep you know the science and keep it as realistic as possible. But that is really a game master's hand waving thing. You would say, all right, well we're going to bring along a maintenance crew to take care of this thing. Okay, done. It works. It's fine. The plane's fine. Yeah. Right. And then you go on. And then you go on with your adventure. You know, you get back, the plaintiffs sustain some damage, and the crew pulls out their tools and the extra equipment they brought with them, and hey, the plane's fixed. Right. You know, we don't we don't want to get too bogged down in minutiae. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, you can if you want. I mean, if that if your group likes to do that and your game master likes to do that, then by all means, you know, knock yourself out. But for most groups, it it's just a thing. Do you bring a crew? Yeah. All right, you're fine. Yeah. The things that I would be more concerned about is the other parts of it. You know, setting up, you know, building an aircraft hangar out uh, wherever it is. Uh, possibly bringing in some kind of a airstrip, a raised airstrip that you can build over any kind of terrain. I know it's possible to do that, and I'm sure someone can. I just don't know if it exists right now. So that would be something that might need to be developed for this kind of exploration. Well, but if you're if you're in a remote area where you're going to need a plane to travel like that, it's not unlikely that you would bring out a team of Frenchworthy people to build a uh, you know a small airstrip or something like that. Actually, right. Depending upon when in the campaign timeline you're doing this, uh, you'd be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm just simply saying is that look for solutions that don't require additional personnel because then you can have this adventure happen earlier in the timeline, which might be more exciting, more self-reliant. But if you want to do it later, that's fine too, because then you'll have better technology, you'll have better materials, there'll be more stuff to do. In World War II, that's what they they did do that. And, you know, they were they would be in Indonesia and they needed an airstrip. They're, they're looking at swamp. So what they would do, they actually had this material they could actually roll out and form a, a usable airfield or landing strip. Uh, sometimes it was actually made from bamboo, you know, like a big old Venetian blind or something like that. And they just roll it out, and there you go. You got more or less flat surface to, to run on. I, I agree with you, Blix. I mean, you know, we want to hand wave this thing as much yeah. as possible, okay? And also, don't always assume that when you come into the area where you're going to have planes, okay? We're, again, we're assuming that we need planes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it doesn't have to be because. Uh, we are in a world where it's so inhospitable that air travel is the only way of getting from one place to another. We talked a lot about that. But there's also another possibility, and that is this may be a world that loves airplanes. 
then maybe everybody has an airplane. Yeah. So you not using an airplane would be unusual. You People would be looking at you. How come you not use an airplane? And oh. this would give you some really cool opportunities because if they used airplanes but they weren't really, really, really high tech, you could be kind of like a James Bond type guy where, oh, yeah, I've got this airplane. But – you know, it looks like a normal airplane, but it's got uh, an advanced turbojet motor on it. So where theirs only goes 200 miles an hour, yours can go 400 miles an hour. Uh, there's a TV show called Thunderbirds that, you know, was a big deal, you know, back in the, the 80s, you know, where this one guy had this scientist friend and he built all these advanced aircraft to run around doing air sea rescue uh, faster than anybody else could get there. And they called themselves International Rescue. Yeah. You as a fringeworthy team could be an international rescue team on a world if you wanted to. You're talking like Crimson Skies. You know, that that's a good world yeah. to, to consider for something like right. this. Right. Imagine a world where they didn't do what we did, which was to put all kinds of roads all over the place. I kind of talked about that a little bit with the Norman Spinrad. Okay? But let's say you had a world in which that was the case where most uh, the mass transit on the local level was the way to do things. They had streetcars going everywhere, um, and they might have had buses. And so people normally didn't have personal automobiles. But if they wanted to travel long distances, they could either take the train or they could take their own personal aircraft. If you're only traveling that using that personal aircraft every so often, just like owning a house, you could own your own aircraft. There's lots of opportunities to do this. Everything from the 1800 dirigible type of world, barnstormers, aircraft over America, 1930s, 1940s, the early age of air exploration with the early jets, the modern uh, experimental type aircraft. If you go to places like uh, San Francisco over the bay, there's aircraft of all kinds flying around over there. Some of them really exotic looking, so your fringe-worthy vehicles from another world might not even look that un unusual. You just simply have to slap an, an experimental label on it and realize you're only going to be allowed to fly during the daytime because otherwise you violate the FAA rules, mm. assuming they're the same on that world, you could get away with a lot of stuff. I like the idea where you have a plane that looks an awful lot like a regular plane, like maybe that DC-3, but inside you got it totally tricked out. I mean, you, you know, it's yeah. basically a bus or you've got all kinds of surveillance equipment, uh, you've got all kinds of strike force type equipment. There's, there's all kinds of things you could do that way. There was a television show called The Magician where magician literally lived inside of a, a double-layer jet and just flew from uh, city to city living inside the, the plane, drove out of it with his own vehicle wherever he wanted to. You can do that in French Royale. There's, you know, It just depends upon the world that your GM offers you. Ask yourself whether you want to do it, first of all, and then secondly, ask yourself whether it would be cool to do it, and then third, ask yourself whether there's a better way that's just as cool. It's hard to justify aircraft when there's so many other lesser ways of doing it, yeah. except for the fact that it's to it can be totally cool. If you're old enough like me to remember the old Tailspin series, just imagine a world like that without the anthropomorphic uh, creatures, just people instead of, instead of bears and right. tigers. <laughs> that was sort of bushwhacking. Yeah. The guys who used to go and explore the outback and even places in Alaska right now, there are towns where unless they bring it overland or on a boat, the essential emergency supplies for the town are brought in by plane. Oh, yeah. That's the way it is in some places in the world. They're that remote. 
There's lots of opportunities to do that in your first-rate campaign, and I want to encourage everybody to, as, as again, as you look for how to put the awesome into your game, aircraft can be one of the easy ways to put the awesome in. We haven't mentioned one kind of aircraft, though. What kind is that, John? The helicopter. Why not use a helicopter? Actually, I've heard it said that you need five limbs to fly a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. and, and when it comes to fuel usage, you're looking at Mr. Pig. Is the gas guzzler. Right. Your average helicopter, uh, unless it really is like a military type or something that's designed for long distance, usually doesn't have more than an hour's flight time. From a fringeworthy standpoint, helicopters are fairly impractical. I don't know. I just don't see using them too much for much of anything. I don't want to say that because, uh, first of all, I love helicopters. Uh, I like helicopters. And secondly, is it because you can fold the the props in one direction fairly easily? They're actually a lot easier to get through the fringe paths than you you know those big wings on most aircraft, Uh, and they can take off. From nothing, they don't need a landing pad. I mean, as long as you can open up the the, the rotors and and there's enough space around you that you're not going to clip something when you take off, you don't need a runway. There's there's a huge reasons to use helicopters, but you're right, they are the most dangerous form of exploration equipment you could imagine yeah. because if anything goes wrong, you're crashing. Yeah. And they're such fuel hogs; they just guzzle fuel. Right. Usually when I think of helicopters, I think of them in terms of the uh, robots, the drones, the UAVs, because they have a whole bunch of them that are basically ducted rotors that literally they'll just lift up off the ground and fly around and float around. And and they they have a range of a a few miles where they have to set themselves down again. They're not for carrying people. Helicopters actually are not the big fuel hogs. The big fuel hogs, especially during takeoff, are the VTO uh, aircraft that oh, has yeah. vertical takeoff and landing jets, yeah. like the right. Harrier, which just sucks down fuel and it's got to be refueled in flight after it takes off because <laughs> it's used okay. up a lot of its fuel in the process. <laughs> right. Well, and the jet packs we were talking about earlier, I'm sure they use a lot of fuel because they don't even generate lift. They yeah. just they just generate force to counteract gravity. Yeah. If you really want to, as we say, bring the awesome to your, your air transport if the players can find something that counteracts gravity in some way, like some of the stuff we were talking about before, that's going to be a game changer right there. A great deal of the fuel that you use is just getting you up in the air. I mean, that, that is a, a major chunk of your energy expenditure. If you could reduce that some way, like, for example, you know, get some kind of anti-gravity or something in, in those, you know, in that vein. Catapult. Well, no, I'm talking about something that, that's no. consistent. Yeah. Your range would increase exponentially. Right, like the mass reduction device that is used in hardwired hinterland. Yeah, that would make helicopters much more feasible. Oh, it make them—they'd be completely feasible at that point because all you have to do is lean the helicopter a little forward and off you go. You know, it, oh, yeah. it's that makes all the difference in the world. I know it's kind of dumb, but it's just—it's important to mention that because we're talking about science fiction, we're talking about alternates, we're talking about Tamela technology. Uh, those are very realistic game changers. Oh, yeah. But if you're in love with helicopters, man, we're not telling you not to put them in your game. I mean, do what makes the game seem cool to you. And helicopters are cool. But when you think about, like, air combat and when you think about flying and swooping and stuff like that, you're not doing that with helicopters. You're doing that with planes. So you, you know, might as well stick with the thing that gives you the experience that you're looking for. Well, I just thought of one more fuel hog that would be more of a fuel hog than anything I think we've mentioned. 
mecca <laughs> flying mecca with jets shooting out of the bottom oh, of their gosh, feet gosh yeah. <laughs> yeah i think they would be like yeah but then again we didn't mention them about being as a form of of, of land travel either but you know <laughs> no but i just think because they're so impractical i mean they're they're such a manga invention i mean they're cool i love them don't get me wrong i really do love them but yeah. um you're talking about you know some kind of nuclear or anti-matter power plant firing right. those things up well, that's what I, I talked about earlier is, is if you were able to actually have some kind of a fusion device that would actually take hydrogen and fuse it and then use that heat uh, to to basically vent – you just vent air through it and just have the fusion side and it blows it out the back, uh, you know, assuming that, of course, it didn't cause radiation to kill you, that thing could produce a tremendous amount of thrust and it would take no weight at all practically. Yeah. But we're talking about a barely controlled nuclear reactor operating on your back. It could be fun. Helicopters are fun devices. Most of us grew up with Airwolf. Yeah, mm-hmm. Airwolf was really cool. I mean, the thing oh, yeah. flew like a plane, but it had the ability of the helicopters. But oh. essentially, it was a weapon platform. TV version of Blue Thunder, too, but, you know. It's just a flying weapon platform. Okay? But it doesn't have most of the swooping, cool things that we think of when we think of aircraft. It sounds good. Practically speaking, we don't recommend helicopters unless you absolutely need something that could do vertical takeoff. And that's what they're good for. That's what they were made for. You want to talk about any awesome. You can also look at other forms of propulsion. There is magnetic hydrodynamics. The hunt for Red October used a water version of that. It's quite possible that someone's come up with an aircraft that either the entire body itself or maybe the engines propelled the aircraft magnetically, basically by ionizing the air around the aircraft and pushing it behind itself. If you go that route, <clears throat> there's a few other aircraft that we haven't mentioned. For example, dragons. Oh, yeah. Flying on a dragon, man. We didn't mention that. There are a lot of worlds in which there could be large aerial animals that could be used to do that. Wyvern. Dinotopia had uh, dinosaurs that you could fly. Don't forget the, the more traditional, a, a flock of swans. Okay. <laughs> In the uh, John Norman's uh, Gore series, they had gigantic eagle-type creatures. Now, this was on a world that had less gravity. So you might be going through a portal and finding a world that has a lot less gravity, and therefore larger-type creatures like that might be more plausible. You could have gigantic air bladder type animals that literally you could just hang a gondola underneath and they would just be sucking down the air krill. The Wind Whales of Ishmael was a story by Jose Farmer where they had gigantic whale type creatures with inflatable sacks that flew the air. The land below was barren and unproductive. All the life was in the upper atmosphere and that's where these whales lived. Structures that were literally built into these gigantic, and I'm talking gigantic, flying creatures. Yeah. Well, hey, and, and let's bring it up to a modern day, you know, right, uh, just out in theaters right now, the Banshees from uh, Avatar. Right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you could have a world where such things could actually happen. There's no reason why you couldn't go to one world and find a gigantic animal like that tame it or it could already be tamed and take that to another world which doesn't have that animal at all it never developed but is still feasible by the laws of physics you could have dragons as part of your flight team going from one world to another and the way i developed it because uh, you know, I, I don't talk about this very much but i, I do have my own system that i was work that i'm working on and in it i do have a dragon-like creature and it has an organ 
which separates hydrogen from the atmosphere and it stores it in bags inside of its chest. It has like a, a helium storage, so it it gains air buoyancy by using the helium. Or hydrogen, you mean? Or I'm sorry, sorry, hydrogen. That's not a magical creature. So if you're leaving that node that only operates on magic, a creature like that, you could take with you to any world because he's not magical. He's not breaking any rules. He's actually following the rules of physics. You're talking about levitation of some sort. Say you find some high-tech world that where they discovered room temperature superconductors. You could potentially build a magnetic levitation aircraft that would work within on a regular planet like Earth, you know, using these, these superconductors. So it's, that's another possibility. Now, it means you have to drag it around on the platform because it ain't going to work. But once you get off the platform, you can charge it up and you're flying. Hey, and what about um, uh, brooms like in Harry Potter? Would you want to fly around on one of those? Flying carpets, if you want to go that route. <laughs> <laughs> right. Flying carpets, right, Sinbad? Sure. Yeah, in one of my Fringeworthy Adventures, I had it set in a, in a pocket world, but uh, it was called The Light and the Dark. And on that particular world... Uh, for every five miles an hour you traveled, you lost half of your mass, but none of your size. And so it was quite possible for a person to be able to fly as long as they got themselves up to a decent speed. Yeah, and, huh. and, uh, and Sony's pocket world is like the junkyard pocket world on Earth Prime. It's 40 miles in circumference, which means it's like, well, uh, I don't know how it was the diameter. I have to do the math. But, you know, it's not very wide, which means if you can get up high enough, you could get into orbit. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's true of any world. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But in this world, you can probably do it with, with, through human power. If you hit a baseball hard enough, you can probably put it into orbit around that little uh, pocket world. You might be on a war, uh, universe where there actually is a breathable atmosphere between the uh, planets. Mm-hmm. Where space wasn't actually empty, space actually had mass in it, and you literally, if you got high enough, could fly from one world to another. There's a great novel for that. It's a world where Aristotelian uh, physics worked. It's called Celestial Matters. It's a wonderful novel. It's a science fiction novel using the, the physics is known by Aristotle, which are, well, wrong. There's also a story by uh, Larry Niven called The Integral Trees, where... Mm-hmm. There actually are these planets that are outgassing. They're producing so much gas that they're leaving a stream of gas behind them. And so there's literally an, in orbit around this star, uh, there is actually a, ga- a gas layer that you can travel from one, uh, plant, you know, one planet to the next. Yeah, it's a neutron star, and it, the gas torus, it, it's separated out to the point where it actually has an oxygen torus in there, and... That's where the integral trees live in there. The integral trees are these giant trees that, because of the gravity, are shaped like an, like, like an integral sign. Okay. So, but the point is is that you can have a world where you literally are able to fly through fairly normal means through outer space. And it doesn't even have to use alternate physics. You can use the physics of our own world. It just has to be a very interesting environment. You could be on some construct in space that's so huge, like I suggested. It might be a gigantic shell that could hold the air in, and you would, would need some kind of a device to fly because you had almost no gravity, and you had to cross great distances, uh, and flying would be quite possible. Even human-powered flight could be possible. And we mentioned before, and we'll mention again because, it's well, we want you to buy it, and that's hardwired hinterland where you are more or less forced to learn to fly between uh, various environments of that world because the oceans are so dangerous. 
Yeah, the oceans are full of carnivorous uh, killer whales and gigantic squid that'll just rip any boat that might be there to bits. So flying in the air is the only safe way of traveling from place to place. Uh, yeah. that, and that could also be possible. Again, when we were talking about the Pellucidar series. The reason nobody in that world knows how to swim is because the oceans are full of carnivorous animals. And it's not safe to put any kind of a watercraft out there. They will be attacked by an animal thinking it's either a predator or someone going into its territory or whatnot. So air flight is one of the best methods of traveling from one place to another. You can create an environment that is uh, stable as far as flight is concerned, but is very dangerous otherwise, where you wouldn't want to touch down unless you had to. There's other worlds, too, that you can imagine where there is no solid land. It's just islands floating in the sky. There is no planet. It's just air, and it's air all the way down, so to speak. And the only way to get in places is through flight of some sort. Think of a universe where there is no vacuum of space. It's just simply gravity doesn't work the same way. And, you know, if there's a big enough piece of solid piece of land, it has one G on it. doesn't matter how thick it is. It has one G on it. This is really a, a semi-fantasy world or a place where physics are really screwy such that there is no such thing as vacuum. It's the ether. Yeah, there's the ether weird places that may exist out there. Well, like you said, one of those pocket worlds. I mean, it, most pocket worlds have land, but you could go into a pocket world where there's nothing but a warp and air. Yep, and a little and, platform to warp to stand on. Well, not even that. It could just be a warp just hanging in the air because oh, that's true. It, it was required in order to build one there. Everything that lives there just simply lives in the Nolgy environment. It's one of those one-way places, so you've gone down to the entrance warp, now you gotta find the exit warp. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, there's a lot of possibilities here, and we hope that the people who are listening will uh, think, uh, take the time to actually see what they can add to their game to make it fun. And remember, mm -hmm. IDET's paying the bill for this, you know. So don't be afraid to, you know, you if you're playing the D20 modern version, you've got a, you know, at least a 15 uh, in your uh, wealth, and probably a lot more. Don't be afraid to go and buy a few pieces of equipment and have fun with them. I would highly recommend getting the advanced version of the Pathfinder for uh, aerial reconnaissance, the DC-3 for any long-range travel because it's so tough. As far as any kind of a personal flight vehicle that's short-range, uh, I'm really big with the whole idea of using the paraglider with the, the go-kart with parachute and the garbage can and the fan in the back that can travel up to uh, 18,000 feet. It doesn't require any real skill in being able to operate. These are great things to have, and you know they can really make the difference between success and a mission, especially you know, if you could do aerial-type things and it doesn't cause everybody to get upset with you because it's unusual or you're invading airspace and stuff like that. John, are there any more tips that could really bring the awesome into the game using aerial vehicles we have mentioned so far? All right, so this has been the uh, the fourth installment of our uh, traveling series for uh, Fringeworthy Adventurers. I hope you all got a, a lot of good clues of, of what you can do with aircraft on the world. This is the Fringeworthy Podcast. Remember, folks, bullets speak louder than words. Chocks up, engine speed, and nice long runways. Atomic batteries to power, turbines to speed. Infinity and beyond, but that's for next week. Thank you.